The 19th century evangelist and author D.L. Moody once said, I've never met a man who has given me as much trouble as myself. I think if we're being honest, <clears throat> most of us could probably say the same, if you think about it. So many of the problems that we face in this life are a direct result of decisions that we've made for ourselves, right? Which is odd, because why would we do that to ourselves? And yet again, if you really think about it, most of the decisions we make revolve around what we believe will make us happy. So uh, we form relationships and make purchases and participate in activities and we go places and we do things based on what we think will make us happy. So why are there then so many discontented people in this world? Right? If we're all making decisions every day based on what makes us feel happy, then why are we not more content with our lives? Why are we not happy all the time? Well, maybe it's because our feelings, including feeling happy, is not actually the ultimate goal of living. Maybe, uh, maybe we were created for something greater than simply trying to feel happy all the time. And I know of course, it's easy for us to sit here and agree with that statement in theory, but seriously, how much of our lives are spent chasing after happiness, even when what we're chasing may not be God's will for our lives? In fact, I would, uh, I would confidently go as far as to say that for many of us, our feelings have become our God. We're ruled by our feelings. We allow them to dictate how we interact with others, how we make decisions, big and small, and even how far we're willing to go in living obediently to God and His Word. If it doesn't make us happy, then we either ignore it or make excuses as to why that particular part of His Word doesn't apply to us today. And in the process, you understand, we, we supplant God with our feelings which means we then in turn equate feelings of unhappiness with something being wrong, as if, uh, as if we're never supposed to feel unhappy, as if we're never supposed to feel sorrow, never supposed to feel frustration or even regret. But look, the hard truth is God's will is not for us to always feel happy. Okay, God's chief concern for your life is not your happiness. It's your wholeness, which is why he never intended for your life to be governed by your feelings, but by his word. That's why the apostle Paul said, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, Colossians 3, 2. Because look, our feelings change all the time based on all sorts of things that are earthly, right? The amount of sleep we get, the amount of sunlight we get. I lived in Alaska. I can tell you uh, how well our team played. Everything from changes in our hormones to changes in the weather. Listen, feelings are fickle. They're ever-changing. God, on the other hand, never changes. His Word never changes. And so because His Word is fixed, while your feelings certainly are not, there will inevitably be times in your life when following God's Word will not feel good. In fact, sometimes it's just the opposite. Sometimes following God's Word will go against every single feeling inside of you, which at times is exactly the way it's supposed to be. See, following God isn't, isn't supposed to always feel 
good. And now we get to the heart of the matter. Because it is in those very moments when God's word is leading you in one direction and yet your feelings are leading you in a totally different direction, it is in those very moments that we make some of the most defining decisions of our entire lives, as we'll see in our story today as we continue working our way through the gospel according to Mark. Because in those moments, our choice is to either forsake God's own word or to forsake our own feelings. And make no mistake about it, the path of least resistance is to go with your feelings every single time because, of course, that's what feels right. That's what makes us happy. And the net result of those decisions to follow your feelings, even when they don't follow God's Word, is not only that your life gets further and further away from God's will, but your heart gets further and further away from God's heart. And I know from firsthand experience, both my own, also in uh, dealing with people as a pastor, and as well in what is clearly evident in these stories that we're studying in the Bible, as we'll see, if you remain on that path long enough, following what feels right to you, even when that controverts the Word of God, even when it contradicts His Word, eventually the Scriptures not only seem to make less and less sense for your life, but eventually they actually become offensive. And listen, when your life is ruled by your feelings, as is so common today, even among professing Christians, when your feelings become your God, the greatest evil in this world is anything that offends those feelings, including the Bible, which explains so much of the behavior that we're seeing in our society today, and even in many elements of the church, behavior that is so vehemently opposed to the truth of God's Word, which leaves us with some hard choices some defining decisions that must be made. Either forsake your own ever-changing feelings and follow His unchanging word, even when it doesn't feel good to do so. Or modify the message of His word to fit your feelings, which has become a widely accepted practice in the modern church. Or just walk away from the faith altogether because it doesn't make you feel the way that you want to feel which we've certainly seen in recent weeks by some well-known ministers, and in fact, it happens every day in local churches everywhere. By the way, that is typically not a move that happens all at once in a person's life. No, the, the result, uh, it's the result of many smaller yet defining decisions over a period of time, decisions to push back against at best, or to outright reject parts of God's Word that don't make you feel good until you no longer identify with enough of His Word for it to make sense for you to follow it at all anymore. And so you either have to change it to fit your feelings or walk away from it altogether, which is what we find was happening with the people in this story today where Jesus, as He always did, saw right through the arguments and excuses and justifications that people would give for not following His Word, and instead He cuts right to the heart of the matter, exposing what was in their own hearts and exposing what was in the Father's heart, leaving them with a choice, a defining decision, the same defining decision that we face over and over again in our own lives, to follow our feelings or to follow the truth of God's Word regardless of how that makes us feel. So let's jump back in the story where we left off last time and see how Jesus pinpoints the heart of this very important matter, the matter of what we choose to actually follow in our lives from day to day. Our hearts 
or his. We'll begin by reading Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to, rest, to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So uh, Jesus leaves Capernaum where he was teaching back in chapter 9 and travels south to the region of Judea as his pilgrimage to Jerusalem continues. And there on the eastern side of the Jordan, also known as Transjordan, if you remember from our series back through Joshua and Judges, he's confronted by a group of Pharisees who ask him a question about divorce, as Mark says, in order to test him. And the word test there in the ancient Greek is paradzo. It means to tempt, in this case, or to entice to sin. Right. So just to be clear... The Pharisees weren't actually interested in Jesus' views on divorce. They simply wanted to try and trap him because they hated him. And has been made clear, uh, as has been made clear in the previous chapters, they wanted him dead. And so they set this trap by asking this question about divorce. In the first century, there was a great debate that was raging among uh, the conservative rabbis at the time and the liberal rabbis over the nature of legal divorce based on God's law uh, in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. The conservative rabbis, were known as the Shammai school, argued that the only time uh, divorce was permissible was when there was sexual infidelity, whereas the liberal rabbis, known as the Hillel school, argued that anything a woman did to even embarrass or disgrace or even simply displease her husband was justification for divorce. And uh, interestingly, if you read the actual interpretation of Deuteronomy 24 by these two very different rabbinical schools of thought, which is written out in the Mishnah, it's, that's the written record of the oral traditions of the rabbis, also known as the oral Torah, you can see how uh, even then, in ancient culture, the religious people could manipulate God's word to satisfy their own personal feelings about a particular matter. So, quoting from the Mishnah, it says, The school of Shammai say, A man may not divorce his wife unless he's found unchastity in her, for it is written, Because he hath found in her indecency in anything. That's taken from Deuteronomy 24, with the emphasis on indecency. So these conservative rabbis believe only in the cases of adultery was divorce justified. Quoting again, the school of Hillel say, he may divorce her, even if she spoiled a dish for him. For it is written, because he hath found in her indecency in anything. The same statement. Just move the emphasis one word over. 
Uh, also, Rabbi Akiba, also another uh, liberal rabbi at the time, he was a leading Jewish scholar and religious sage in, at that time. He says, and I'm quoting again, even if he found another fairer than she, for it is written, and it shall be if she find no favor in his eyes. So if I decide she looks better than my wife, I can divorce my wife and go marry her. Amazing, isn't it? How you can have two totally different interpretations of the exact same passage of scripture based on one's personal feelings about the subject being addressed in that passage, which was a big part of the Pharisees' plan here to trap Jesus, as we'll see, and yet there was more to it than that because in addition to the whole debate between the conservative and liberal rabbis concerning divorce, you'll remember back in chapter six that Herod Antipas had John the Baptist imprisoned for speaking out against Herod's unlawful divorce and then adultery with his brother's wife, a stand that ultimately ended with John's beheading. And so as far as the Pharisees are concerned, they have Jesus right where they want him with this question about divorce because if Jesus says divorce is unlawful, then all they have to do is run to Herod and tell him what Jesus is teaching and suddenly their Jesus problem goes away. Right? And yet if he says that divorce is permissible, then they can claim that Jesus is in violation of the law of Moses as interpreted by their fellow conservative rabbis, the school of Shammai. So it's, it's a win-win for the Pharisees and a lose-lose for Jesus, of course, until he actually answers them by asking them his own question in turn. What, what did Moses command you? Notice what Jesus is doing here. It's what he, what he always did. When someone tries to argue with him about the word of God, he answers them with the word of God. It's exactly what he did with Satan while being tempted in the wilderness. It's exactly what we see him through all, do all throughout his ministry, including here where he points these men back to the scriptures. And of course they reply with, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away, which was true. And yet they didn't bother to acknowledge all of the other scriptures about marriage and divorce, which together with the law of Moses paints a much bigger picture, a much clearer picture of the issue of marriage and divorce. And so Jesus not only acknowledges the Mosaic law, but he shows them that the bigger picture, that bigger picture about the whole story, and in doing so, he reveals, of course, not only their hearts, but the heart of the Father as well. He says, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote that commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they're no longer two but one flesh. Well, therefore God has joined. Let not man separate. And so in this one response, Jesus quotes or references Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 3, Genesis 1, 27, Genesis 2, 24, and Exodus 20, 14. And in doing so, he cuts straight to the heart of the matter. In other words, if you're going to make a judgment on a subject as sacred as the covenant of marriage, then at least consider what all of the scriptures have to say about marriage and divorce, rather than only referencing the one passage that you think you can manipulate to suit your own personal feelings, because in the process of following your feelings rather than God's word, you're creating an endless trail of brokenness in people's lives, in relationships with other people. I'm telling you, this is a lesson that every single professing Christian needs to learn today. Following your feelings first inevitably leads to brokenness 
in your life, especially brokenness in your relationships. And listen, there are valid reasons for divorce given to us in Scripture, especially uh, in Matthew's account of this same story. He records Jesus as saying, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. It's what's known as the acceptive uh, clause in theology, the allowance for divorce in the event where there's adultery involved. And then in his letter to the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul, writing on the issue of marriage and divorce, says that if an unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, 1 Corinthians 7.15. So yes, yes, there are allowances for divorce in Scripture, but when you look at the entire picture of marriage and divorce in the Bible, it becomes abundantly clear, according to Jesus, that divorce was never God's plan for his people. And yet, listen, uh, no-fault divorce today is almost as common within the church as it is outside of the body of Christ. Why is that? Well, because often we become unhappy, of course, in our marriages, and we don't like being unhappy, so, so we break this covenant between us in the hopes of finding someone else who will make us happy. And in the process, our lives are broken. Our families are broken. Our friendships are broken. Our kids are broken. Our witness to the world is broken. And yes, most importantly, our relationship with Christ is broken. Because brokenness is what chasing after our feelings first leads to. And listen, uh, you need to know I'm not denying or minimizing the depth of hurt or unhappiness that can and does occur in many marriages as a pastor. In fact, I see it at the deepest levels. And yes, it can and should be addressed and worked through, which, uh, by the way, can at times take years of committed effort, but that doesn't change the reality that outside of adultery or abandonment by an unbeliever, Jesus said you must stay the course, and in fact, we can take that a step further because not only is unhappiness not a valid reason to abandon your marriage, the truth is unhappiness, frustration, sorrow, even regret are actually to be expected at times, anytime you enter into a, a relationship as deep and consequential as the marriage of a man and a woman. It's ludicrous to think otherwise. The fact is, at times, God intends for us to struggle, to sorrow, to question, to battle through the unhappiness and discontentment we sometimes feel because that's how we grow, that's how we mature, that's how we become stronger both as individuals and as married partners. Uh, the fact of the matter is sometimes marriage is supposed to be hard. And in fact, you can apply that to uh, all relationships worth having. Your friendships, uh, your working relationships, your family relationships, your church relationships, if they're worth having, then they're worth fighting for, and they need to be fought for if those relationships are ever to move beyond something deeper than a superficial, surface-level connection. And look, so often, the reason people walk away from those important relationships in their lives instead of fighting for them is because they put their feelings first. Right? Their desire for happiness overrides their desire for wholeness and depth. 
And so they walk away, never learning how to remain in committed relationships. And consequently, they go through life lacking the kinds of deep relationships that God created us to have with each other. Most of all, with Him. You see, people who fail to form deep relationships with other human beings, generally those same people fail at forming a deep relationship with God. Because they don't, they don't want to have to forsake their own feelings in order to experience the depth of relationship with Him that is available to every one of us when we lay ourselves bare before Him. My friend Frank gave me a book the other day titled Foundation of Repentance by Martha Kilpatrick. In it she writes, We want to be filled with the Spirit, but not laid in the dust. We want to change without humiliation. We want to repent without shame. We want the anointing, but not the emptiness and destitution of self that vacates man and welcomes God. It's so true of us today. We want the benefits of strong relationships without the sacrifice of self that is required to have them. Nowhere does that show up more in our lives than in our marriage relationships, second only to our relationship with Jesus Christ. This was the heart of the matter. Right? And it's what Jesus was trying to show these Pharisees whose hearts had become so hardened from years of putting their feelings before the word of God, and as they proved so undeniably, when you follow your feelings first, broken relationships will ever be your reward. Let's keep reading, verses 13 through 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and these disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And so as Jesus continues to teach, there were uh, these parents bringing their children to him because they obviously had witnessed his great power and have certainly heard of him throughout the region and all of the miracles he was working. And they, they wanted their kids to receive a blessing from Jesus by touching them, but the disciples were incensed by it. You'll remember from last week where we talked about the fact that in the ancient world, the mortality rate among children was very high. In fact, it was so high that it was common for children to die before they were even five years old. And because of that, the smallest children as a rule were not considered by society as a whole to be significant as human beings, not, not at least until they had reached an age where they had a much higher likelihood of survival. And as a result, where we in the Western world regard sensitivity toward children as a virtue, in uh, ancient Hebrew culture, children, for the most part, were not viewed affectionately at all, at least not in the way that we tend to view them in our culture today. In fact, uh, there's an early third century Gnostic writing called Thomas the Contender that was discovered in Egypt in, in the mid-20th century, and I was reading it that recounts this same story about Jesus blessing the children in Mark's gospel, and in that account, the babies are compared to beasts until they grow older. 
so you understand the mindset that people had toward children in ancient Palestine. The fact is, if there was any value associated with a child at the time, it was directly tied to their relationship with adult males. So if the father was an upstanding, contributing member of the community, then the child could find some worth in the fact that if he survived to adulthood, which was considered 13 years of age at the time, then he would turn, uh, in turn be able to prove his value to the family and to the greater community. But listen, up until that point, children were just extra mouths to feed. Non-contributing members of the family who used up the family's resources. And so for Jesus to be spending his time blessing all of these children was, in the minds of the disciples, a great waste of time and energy. And so they became annoyed with all of these kids' parents and began to rebuke them for bothering Jesus with their children. And once again, Jesus' response not only reveals the heart of the disciples, but it reveals the heart of the Father because when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, you ain't getting in. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And that last statement by Jesus, listen, is so profoundly important for us to understand. Because although it's common uh, really for preachers and teachers to say that Jesus was referring to the innocence and purity and humility of a child when he says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Actually, that's not at all what he was saying. The word child that Jesus uses there is the Greek word pahadion. It's a diminutive noun. It means he was referring to very young children or babies, which is actually further confirmed by the fact that in Luke's account of this same story, he refers to them in chapter 18, verse 15, as infants. In other words, these were clearly children so young, they were well below the age of accountability. And here's why that matters. Because these children were too young to possess these or any other virtues that we typically ascribe to good people, virtues that would somehow maybe make someone worthy of a blessing. No, these were babies, infants. They didn't possess any virtue at this point whatsoever. And furthermore, if that was what Jesus meant, then when he says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it, he would have been saying to his disciples, until you're pure enough, until you're innocent enough, until you're humble enough, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. No, that's legalism. That's religion. That is unattainable. You understand what Jesus was saying to his disciples here was just the opposite. He was saying, you cannot earn your way into my kingdom any more than these little babies who have zero virtue on their own. They're helpless. They're powerless. They're small. They're undeserving. They cannot claim to have done anything good or anything worthy of my blessing. And yet here I am taking them into my arms and blessing them. Listen, not because they've earned it or deserve it or possess some kind of inherent virtue. Not at all. Well, then Jesus why are you receiving them and blessing them? For no other reason than the fact that they've come to me. Are you getting it? 
Jesus was saying, I accept everyone who comes to me, no matter their stature or status or lack of virtue or helplessness or powerlessness, no matter their station in life, no matter what they've done or not done, it does not matter. All you have to do is come to me and I will accept you and bless you. It certainly recalls his words in Matthew's gospel where Jesus says, come to me all, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Of course, we know that means humble repentance, brokenness before God. They take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30. So listen, disciples, listen, followers, listen, Christians, no matter how you may feel about someone else, don't ever hinder anyone from coming to me. That's what Jesus was saying, and clearly it needed to be said because the disciples were still following their feelings first. They, like every other Hebrew, considered these babies to be less than them, which is exactly what following your feelings first leads to, exclusionism. I may not be as good, as talented, as wealthy, as sharp, as likable, as successful as that person over there, but I'm definitely at least more of some of that than this person over here. Of course, I know that none of us wants to believe that we think that way, but let's just be real with ourselves for a moment. If I ask you to name someone that you wouldn't want to invite to your home for Thanksgiving supper, I bet it wouldn't take too long for you to think of someone. If I ask you to think of a person or even a type of person that you wouldn't want to have to drive to work every single day, I bet you could think of someone fairly quickly. If I ask you to think of a type of person that you wouldn't want your own child of marrying age to marry, maybe someone with a particular kind of past before they met Christ, I bet you could make a list a mile long of those people you wouldn't want marrying your own son or daughter. Why is that? It's because our feelings tell us that we're somehow better than them. That our children are somehow better than them. Of course, we'd never admit that, but we sure do think it. It's exclusionism, and it's what happens in our hearts when we allow our feelings to rule our lives instead of God's word. And listen, the real danger of exclusionism is not that by being that way we're keeping people from Thanksgiving supper or keeping people from a free ride to work or even keeping people from marrying our sons and daughters. No, the real danger in being exclusionary toward other people is the fact that by being that way we're keeping people from coming to Christ. Just like the disciples were keeping these children from Jesus. And so he cuts right to the heart of the matter and he says, stop it. Just because you think you're better, don't hinder them. No, you let them come to me. Okay, look, I, I see it all the time. I see it every single day on social media how Christians mock other people. I see it at restaurants, how Christians talk to their servers. I see it in the church, how Christians treat their brothers and sisters in Christ. And as much as I cannot stand to admit it, 
I see it in myself. The way sometimes we treat other people. Listen, the way that we sometimes treat other people can actually hinder them from coming to Jesus. Yet that's not his heart. So why is it ours? Well, it's because we give more weight sometimes to what we feel about a person than we do to what God's word actually says about that person. The fact that they're created in his image the same as you are. The fact that they will come to Christ just the same way that you did without a single solitary claim to even a shred of anything virtuous or worthy inside of you. Listen, when your feelings about someone contradict what God's word says about that same someone, then it's time for you to forsake your feelings and honor that person for who God says they are so you don't hinder them in any way from coming to Jesus. I don't know how else to say it. We just really need to get over ourselves. You're not any more special or deserving of God's grace and blessings than anyone else. And neither am I. So why do we act like we are? It's because we've allowed our feelings to become our God, to rule our hearts. And so Jesus once again rebukes his disciples then, and I'm afraid even today, and says to us, hey, it's time to let your feelings go and let the children come to me. Let's finish our story for today, verses 17 through 31. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who, who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. He's talking about the church with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So just as Jesus is about to continue on toward Jerusalem, he's approached by a man who falls on his knees before him. And we know from Matthew's account of this story that it was a young man, and yet a man of great wealth. And by every indication, he was as sincere about his question as he could be. 
He approaches Jesus humbly. He kneels before him, which is a sign of respect. He refers to Jesus as good teacher or good uh, rabbi, which was a sign of tremendous honor in that culture. And he asks the question, what must I do to have eternal life? And after a brief question and answer time between him and Jesus, where Jesus once again takes him back to the scriptures, it becomes clear that this man was not only highly religious, but also highly faithful to the law of Moses. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Once again, it's the heart of Christ revealed in that as lost as this man was, Jesus loves him and has compassion on him. And so Jesus says to him, you just lack one thing, just a little thing. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had a great possession. This man clearly did not understand who it was he was talking to. Because no matter how much wealth he may have had standing right there in front of him was the greatest treasure this world has ever known. There was no amount of material wealth that man had or could ever amass in a hundred lifetimes that could compare to the offer that Jesus was making him. R.C. Sproul once said he was like a man who would not trade a wooden nickel for a billion dollars, and yet that is a poor analogy. He thought his own possessions were worth more than Jesus. This was a man ruled by his feelings for material wealth, which again is is exactly where following our feelings inevitably leads us straight into idolatry. Because look, there, uh, there are certainly times in our lives as, as Christians when we feel excitement about following Christ. Yes, when we feel a great affection for Him. Of course, when our feelings are full of desire to follow Him and obey Him and serve Him and His people. Yes, but we're human beings which means no matter how great of a Christian you are, there will be times in your life this side of heaven when you just simply won't be feeling it. When every single feeling inside of you will desire just about everything but Jesus. In fact, I can't think of a better example of a committed Christian than the great Apostle Paul. Here's what he said about his feelings. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Romans 7, 21 through 24. Paul struggled. The apostle Paul struggled with his own feelings, his own desire for sin. And I just wonder... How many of us who profess faith in Jesus Christ are actually bowing down before other things in our lives today? Money, possessions, position, lust, addiction, in short, ourselves. How much time do you spend each day thinking about yourself and what you want compared to the time you spend each day thinking about Jesus Christ and what he wants? How much time and money and effort do you spend each year doing things for yourself compared to the time and money and effort that you spend each year doing things for Christ? What is your life actually submitted to right now? Because I'm telling you, your feelings will choose yourself over Christ almost every single time. Which Jesus made abundantly clear as this rich young man turned and walked away from the Messiah 
Why? Because he wanted his stuff more than he wanted Jesus. And so Jesus responds, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished, I guess they were, and said to him, well, then who can be saved? There's a popular story, by the way, uh, that's been circulating in the church regarding this saying by Jesus. It actually started in the 15th century, some say all the way back to the 9th century, that says the eye of a needle was a smaller gate in Jerusalem that opened after the main gate closed at night, and that a camel could actually pass through that smaller gate after it was made to stoop down and have its baggage removed. And maybe you've heard that story. I heard it all growing up in church. The problem with it is there's actually absolutely zero evidence that that gate or anyone even such like it ever existed. The truth is, that story is nothing more than an attempt to make us feel better about what Jesus actually just said. That old worn-out story is simply trying to convey this idea that somehow with the right amount of careful effort, people who are given to idolatry can still make it into the kingdom of God. And yet there's no historical, archaeological, circumstantial, or theological evidence to support that story in any way, shape, or form. What we do have, an abundance of evidence for, however, is the fact that trying to fit a large animal through the eye of a needle, a sewing needle was actually a very common saying at the time that was always used to refer to something that was impossible apart from God's supernatural intervention, which was obviously the spirit of what Jesus was saying here. In fact, I read that saying just this week in the third century Babylonian Talmud, which refers to an elephant trying to go through the eye of a needle. I read it in the eighth century Hebrew Midrash on the Song of Songs, which refers to only God's ability to make a camel go through the eye of a needle. I read it in the third century Aramaic writings of the Babylonian Jewish scholar Sheshet, who talks about the futility of trying to push an elephant through the eye of a needle. And I even read it in the 7th century Muslim Quran, where it compares those who continue trying to live in sin and to get into heaven with those who try to pass a camel, yeah, through the eye of a needle. The fact is, this was a very common saying in antiquity, a metaphor for something that was utterly impossible apart from God, which is clearly how Jesus meant it as he goes on to say, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Listen to me. You may be facing brokenness in a relationship today that is impossible for you to repair, but not with God. You may be dealing with dysfunction in your body that is impossible for you to fix, but not with God. You may be standing before an obstacle in your circumstances that is impossible for you to overcome, but not with God. You may be in the midst of the greatest battle of your life where victory seems completely impossible, but I'm telling you, not with God. And listen, you may have followed your own feelings so far away from Jesus Christ that coming back to him now feels like the equivalent of pushing a camel through the eye of a needle, which is utterly impossible, but not with God. And in that one statement, Jesus, in regard to this rich man, cuts right to the heart of the matter. 
the fact that God's chief concern for your life is actually not your happiness. It is your wholeness, which is utterly impossible, by the way, for you to obtain apart from him. Just as we've seen with this rich young man, not everything that makes you feel happy makes you whole, which means there's a decision, a defining decision that we all have to make every day of our lives to follow our feelings, which may or may not be aligned with his word at any given point along the way, or to follow his word regardless of how that makes you feel at any given point along the way. And of course, it's not that feelings are bad in and of themselves. No, God gave us the ability to feel, and I'm glad that he did. But listen, we have to submit those feelings to the will of God, which is found in the word of God daily. If we're not just to be happy, but to be whole. And at times, that will require you to forsake your own feelings, to allow his word, listen, to allow his word to offend you to allow his word to rub you the wrong way, to allow his word to cut right to the heart of the matter. And trust me, it will if you'll let it, because these aren't just ancient stories. No, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of what? The heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account, Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. You understand? Sometimes the very best thing for you is to allow the word of God to hurt your feelings, to shake you to your core, to disrupt your happiness on the journey to wholeness. The truth is, Sometimes you need to allow God's word to utterly break your heart until all that is left is Jesus. Let's pray.